Even on top of the mountain, it's just hot. <laughs> I bet. I spend about an hour, hour and a half every day watering the same plants. <laughs> but it is summer, so, right? Yeah. And it's the summer. south. <laughs> yeah. Summer in the south. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we, we all missed. Sorry, everyone. We all missed forgot July, but here we are. <laughs> it's funny. I was, like. Um, going into the store earlier and I was just like oh my god the heat and I was like thinking to myself I must do this every year like it's a new thing I know right <laughs> and then in the winter we'll be like woo it's cold yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's kind of funny yeah yeah All right. so I may my second year here right yeah. I may need central air. Last year wasn't so bad. Yeah. It's a little bit hot right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm on top, so it's a it's at least ten degrees cooler than the valley, but we're we're going through some heat right now, so it's still hot. <laughs> what if what have you been doing? Do you just leave your windows open and fans or Yeah, it's not because luckily we're up top it's not like i'm not dying it's just warm you know what i mean it's not cool in here at all i had the same deal when i lived in the cabin in mars hill we were in a valley and it was like 10 to 15 degrees cooler than in town you know just five away and it was but so summers were nicer but winters were brutal Winter's cold, yeah. Yeah, especially when it snowed and ice. Yeah. Yeah. I'll complain about that in a couple months, right, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so cold. You want to go first? I can. What I ended up doing is reading a whole bunch of Fate magazine. Oh, awesome. And we said that we were like stuck in the seventies, sixties, and seventies. I'm I'm always yeah. read some from the nineties. Oh, good. So the two that I pulled out of are um, February nineteen ninety, well January nineteen ninety, and February nineteen ninety. Oh, cool. Let me decide what to start with. Um, all right, here's one by D. Scott Rogo. One of, our, one of our saves and it's an article he's discussing California exorcisms and but I'm going to go into the account that he shared okay 
And and this is he got this from a book, and it's about Michael Crichton, the guy that wrote Jurassic Park. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's called The Exorcism of Dr. Michael Crichton. <laughs> I didn't know this at all. Um, so Dr. Michael Crichton left medicine to pursue a literary career. And he wrote a whole bunch of books. But I'm saying Jurassic Park because everybody, everybody will be like, yeah, that guy. And he also wrote a book called Travels, which was published in 1988. And that includes his reports of experiments with psychics and psychic development programs. So that's an interesting book to get, Travel, 1988. Cool. So here's what happened. Dr. Crichton was completing work in 1986 with a psychic living in Los Angeles, whom he simply calls Gary. Dr. Crichton was studying to become a trance channel during one of their sessions together, the psychic suddenly remarked that he sensed an entity near his student. It was a dark force and Gary wondered if Dr. Crichton could feel the presence. The physician explained that he didn't perceive the ent entity. So the psychic proceeded to say that you picked it up earlier in your life, maybe at a time when you were sick or if you drank or took a lot of drugs at some time in your life. The psychic further asserts that when we're weak, these spirits can latch on to us and enjoy our ride through life. Right. Gary, yeah. Gary claims that sometimes we create these entities ourselves. I love that part. That's what we always talk about, right? We create these entities ourselves and that they take on a life of their own and possess us. Right. Dr. Crichton was enraged and frightened you're saying i need an exorcist after calming down he and gary scheduled a depossession for the following day the session took place in the psychic's residence and a psychologist sat in on the proceedings dr Crichton reported that when he got to gary's apartment it was completely transformed the drapes were drawn there were lighted candles everywhere on the couch was a row of pictures of holy people from Jesus Christ to Muktanada. I don't know that one. There were crystals scattered around on all the tables. In the center of the room, the massage table was covered with a white cloth. Dr. Crichton reclined on the table and the session commenced. Gary began by helping the psychologist relax on a nearby sofa. Then he instructed Dr. Crichton to envision his body surrounded by light. Could he see anything projected within the light? To his surprise, Dr. Crichton saw a cartoon demon, a sort of Walt Disney evil spirit with wings that looked like the devil from Fantasia. Oh, I love it. And I, right, you're not, he's not, he's like, I mean, he's, he got mad when the, when you, the, the psychic said, you know, he saw something. Yeah. But he agreed to do this. And then the, as soon as they say, do you see anything? He, he does, right? He's like, I saw this devil right in front of me. I also saw a sort of large bug, like an ant down near my feet. 
And I saw a little man about two feet high with a hat behind my left shoulder. At the time, Dr. Crichton felt too ridiculous to describe the entity, so he remained silent. Gary asked the attending psychologist, was she seeing anything? Her response came as a shock. There are three entities around him. There is a large creature, an insect, and a little man. Dr. Crichton felt forced to corroborate these statements. Gary decided to make contact with the entities. After falling, failing to communicate with the little man, he focused on the bat-like demon, who Dr. Crichton felt was a childhood creation, something he conjured into existence to protect him from his father. Wow. The boy had felt that he had to compete with his father for his mother's love. The entity had served similar protective functions during the rest of his life. That's wild. Yeah. Gary told Dr. Crichton to thank the entity for its help and to discharge it. The doctor began to speak to the possessing demon, wishing him the best. <laughs> <laughs> but imploring him to leave. Unfortunately, both he and the psychologist could sense that the entity was not following the instructions. Dr. Crichton felt sad for this tiny little thing formed in the image of his tiny creator, this frightened forlorn, forlorn child that must now leave. And I felt sad for myself and sad to move on now. And in, it, in the instant of that burst of sadness, the little kid shoots off into the distance. The psychologist is still lying on the sofa nearby. Simultaneously with Dr. Crichton's subjective sensation, she blurted out, he's gone. Dr. Crichton reports in travels that he felt a sense of, sense of emptiness for several days, but realized that some sort of stable change have, had overcome him. He found himself extremely sensitive to the slights he experienced in his everyday life, and that lasted for several weeks. Wow. And then uh, Rogo's analyst to end it. I personally don't know if Dr. Crichton was really possessed by some sort of entity, either created by his own mind or perhaps independent of it. But I do think that in some sense, each of us conceals inner and private demons best exercise. For this reason, I feel that exorcism and related religious rituals can be powerful psychological and spiritual tools for some people, but only when used properly. Yeah, I, I that's interesting. I, I, it, it makes me think of a uh, really, really good, the, probably the best most realistic i don't know if that's the right word but um movie on witchcraft and occultism i've ever seen called a dark song right i still haven't watched that you always so, tell me like that's like so it's amazing i watched it again the other night and um um there's a scene in there where the uh the magician and his student are talking and um He's saying, you know, look, when you read about this stuff online, it'll tell you that these um, entities you come in contact with are just pieces of ourself. He's like, that's 
total bullshit. These are real entities. But right. but I think there's room for both. Right. I, I think I think there's both. That some of these things are real entities, but there it's also possible like this guy to create his own and uh you know um Vooks talked about that quite a bit. Right. Yeah. What's the like name? Papa's. Yeah, Papa's. yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I think it's um definitely there's room for both. I don't think it's either or. So now I'm addicted to fate again. It's such, yeah. it's such a great magazine. It's I could I could read that magazine endlessly. It's amazing. I had I used to subscribe and I had oh my goodness, like in the eighties and nineties. Oh, I gave it all away, right? Oh, me too. Sadie asked me that the other day. She said, My granddaughter, she said we were talking about she asked if I had my little pony, because that's her favorite. And yeah. I said, No, I said I think they came out when I was a little bit older. Yeah. Like, you know, preteen or something. Yeah. And I said I told her about toys I had, and she goes, can I see them? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I don't have them anymore. And she's like, why not? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, because she's five almost. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, what do you mean you didn't keep them? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I'm I, like, well, I you totally make sure you keep your favorite. <laughs> yeah. I told her, I, I, oh, my God, if I had all the stuff I had before I would be the happiest person alive. It's just, right. I've, I've spent my later years trying to get back some of it. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. She's right. The smart kid keeps everything. Right. She's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> all right. I got one. This is from a book. I really like called Faye. The Unveiling, a pra Practical Fairy Guide mm -hmm. by Anne, uh, Anne Atri. I think mm -hmm. that's A-T-R-I. And um, she claims that she communicates with fairies. And she gives the whole books a rundown of navigating the fairy realm and all that. And uh, this is a chapter called Fairy Games, Chapter 13. Fae are well known for playing games, and most highly enjoy it. The thing is, not all their games are something humans might enjoy, especially when the human is generally the pawn involved. Fae games can stem from simple like pranks and harmless, even sometimes affectionate teasing, to games far more sinister and dangerous. Hey. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll start over. Okay. Uh, this is from Faye the Unveiling, A Practical Fairy Guide by Anna Tree. And this is Fairy Games. Faye are well known for playing games and most highly enjoy it. The thing is, not all their games are something humans might enjoy, especially when the human is generally the pawn involved. Fay games can stem from simple light pranks and harmless, even sometimes affectionate teasing to games far more sinister and dangerous. Why do Fay do it? Simply because a lot find it fun. There is something in their makeup 
that just cannot let go of the draw of the game, even if it is something a little wicked and mischievous or chaotic. It fuels them much like an adrenaline rush. They love it, and a majority of them love to mess and toy with humans specifically, whether it be in harmless jest or in ways that could lead to even even one's death. Their games are not limited to the waking physical world either. They can cross dimensions, which means they can enter and play with people through other dimensional avenues. There are far more dimensions than most people are aware of, even in this plane we live in. The mind is a dimension, thought, dream. When you write a story or draw something down, that in itself becomes a small little dimension because it lives now in its own little world and place of existence. Faye can manipulate and find you in any of these places. Many like to toy with people in their dreams. Not all can cross in a dream realm the same as others, as some are more limited to physical areas or elemental properties. But many species can't. Why do Faye like to find people in dreams? It may be easier for them to reach you in this state when the business of your day-to-day schedule settles down and your mind is more open to experiencing and accepting in otherly dimensional things and beings. Dreaming is also a direct link to our subconscious minds, and they honestly can do a lot more there in the realms of influence, seduction, lore, or in a simple game. This also makes those that can cross into dreams highly more dangerous, as you can be fooled into thinking it's just a dream because it is and not have complete control over your more logical, awake sense of decision-making. They can make you see anything. Some may even appear in a dream as a family member or someone that you know, only to reveal themselves later when you wake up as being off or not them in the dream. Mm -hmm. I even had a dream once where I was at a hotel of some sort, asking the hotel owner if my son could stay at the hotel with me. In the dream, I believed fully without a doubt that this boy was my son, even though something fell off in the dream. But I couldn't place what. When I woke, I realized that I have two sons, but he wasn't one of them. No. I remember the boy in the dream just grinning at me. This is a good example of being under the Fey influence and how sometimes they can just play simple mind games. There seems to be a lot of confusion about what you're supposed to do if a fae is playing games with you, assuming we are speaking about the more innocent games and not something deadly. Should you engage and play back or not? What if you don't want them to play? Do you give them something to make them stop? First of all, never try to pay off a fae for compliance or to go away. As stated in earlier chapters, that is rude and they will not be pleased. That would be similar to paying off a guest to just leave. That might hurt feelings as they are sensitive and only doing what is in their nature. They think they are having fun, even if if it's not something you find likable. What can you do then if you really aren't comfortable with them messing with you or you feel any ill will from the Fae where you might be in danger? This is a tricky area because it is very easy to upset and insult a Fae. Even more when you take rash approaches without respect. Remember, even if it was their intent to harm you, they might find it rude for you to just assume so if they haven't. Be very wary of approach. One way would be to simply ignore the Fae. Honestly, in some circumstances, this is the best route. 
-hmm. in most cases they're trying to get to you meaning they want a reaction from you if you ignore them that takes all of the fun away for a lot of them they might see it a bit frustrating and rude but it's highly less rude than putting iron around everywhere and doing things that might physically harm the fae involved Mm-hmm. You might have a war on your hands and you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> it's also advised to know how to strengthen and use energy mental blocks to keep out unwanted manipulations of your mind and senses. It's not foolproof and fair experts with far more experience on influence than you do in mental shields. But it is a powerful practice that one can develop through meditation and energy work. Other recommendations would be to use natural safe for fey things that they just might not like very well and find repulsive, whereupon they just don't want to be around you anymore because of them. There are a few herbs that fey just find repulsive in smell or energy texture that don't actually harm them, like rue. They just don't like it. You could also fill your home with things that aren't very attractive to fey. For ideas, look at look back at the chapter on offerings. It states there are things that they do not like, that they find off-putting and don't like to be around. Stress, bad energy in the home, and claustrophobic ventilation of the home, too, can de- de- detour Faye from hanging around you. Not that these are good things for people either, but I'm noting it as an idea food if you need it. Mostly approach all fae with tact and respect, even if they make you afraid, especially if they make you afraid. You can also try talking to them politely, but again, tact. They are not like spirits whom you hear about, where if you just yell at them to go away, it might make them. Fae would get enraged. You can also question why it is that you have attracted a certain fae's attention in a way that is giving you negative impressions. Did you disturb something of theirs? Did you do something disrespectful that you aren't aware of? Can you fix the heart of the problem and return what you took or make amends in some way if they are angry with you? This is, of course, if there is a reason behind any hostility involved, which is not always the case, but sometimes the simplest answer might surprise you. If you find their interaction and games interesting and something you like and want to encourage, by all means, they don't mind if you jump in and play with them. That gives them attention and just makes the game all the more fun. Just know it is very unlikely that you will win at any game you play with Faye, and fairy games can get very dangerous depending on the Faye. Be respectful and make sure it doesn't spiral out of control where you might cross over the line of polite, friendly play into something more patronizing or arrogant that might insult a Faye. This leads to the question, would you be really ready to challenge a fae at their own game? You decide. (laughs) Just note that if you are using a fae by engaging in any game or way with them, for the sake of learning more about them, as if they are a science project of the paranormal, that would be very rude and offensive. That is patronizing. They are not a toy for your amusement. They are not an animal at the zoo for you to see and ogle over for your own amusement and curiosities. You are not above them. Be careful with respect and crossing lines. Games are fun until they're not. Man, I fucking love that, especially Mm -hmm. that last, because that's how I feel about a lot of these paranormal people. Mm -hmm. It, it, It seems 
like with a lot of these fucking Bigfoot hunters, these goofballs running around the woods and they're fucking camo and shit. Mm-hmm. That to me is offensive. That that's just it's fucking stupid. And there's something about it that's like um rude. And and right. it, and it's it's so funny that that word pops up, but it does. It makes me think of because when I saw the orange orbs, you you I've told this story a million times, but yeah. when when I saw the lights in 2014, I had a cell phone in my pocket. I had a one of the old flip phones, mm-hmm. and it had a camera on it, and that was my thought. Like that would be rude to snap a picture of these. Like I, that's the thought I had. Right. Like I, yes, I could pull this out and maybe get a picture, probably a blurry one. A blurry photo. But it felt rude. It was like you wouldn't like, like if you met uh, somebody you admired and would just walk up and snap your a picture. Right. In their face, that's rude. I don't know. I just that's the way I felt about it. Right, and maybe it takes away like from the experience because. I mean, just in life in general, where we're taking selfies of everything. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you're just there to experience something, you know. Right. Sometimes, you know. <laughs> right. And, and and what is it that make and yeah, I I don't know that last um, paragraph really mm-hmm. hit me because it's like. Um, yeah, they are not a toy for y- your amusement. They are not an animal at the zoo to see an ogle for your own amusement and curiosities. I think me and you feel that way about this All whole this. thing. Right. You know, it's like, um, um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I don't know why I can't um, uh, put it into a logical s- a statement. Mm-hmm. except that some of the things uh, so-called paranormal researchers do are fucking rude right. and obnoxious. <laughs> it's just rude and obnoxious, you know, like, um, so yeah, I like that, you know, I, yeah, I, like, I like that book too. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like a good one. Sorry to go off on a rant. Games are fun. <laughs> well, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not. <laughs> okay. Uh, quick question before you go to your next one. Mm-hmm. Have you watched any of the... Uh, um, uh, whistleblower... UFO stuff. No, I haven't been. I'm, I'm not because... even. Okay, you haven't been either. Nah, I I saw a quick thing. It popped up in my YouTube feed, and uh, I was bored within a minute. I was like, <laughs> yeah, kind of like and I'll catch this later. <laughs> it, it, it was so funny because, um, do you know who Jeremy Corbell is? The guy, the guy who brought around Bob Larson, uh, not Bob Larson, um, uh, the Area 51 guy. 
the guy who claims he worked at Area 51 and all that. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they, they, yeah, he made the most recent documentary, Bob Lazar, about him. Yeah, yeah. And Bob during Lazar. the during the hearings, the whistleblower is claiming uh, to Congress that he uh, knows that we have alien bodies and all this stuff, and that fucker Jeremy Corbell is right behind him. It's like, <laughs> it's like we can't escape this dude. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's gonna keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, he's right there on it, but yeah, I I don't know, I don't know. I just I'm not interested. I don't. I don't, really, I, don't I, know. I, I I feel like I I don't like what's popular at the moment. I don't know. That sounds horrible, but I like I might check it out later. But yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting fucked in right now. <laughs> yeah, it just I I don't I it. I mean, I don't need um, people to validate this for me, or you know, I don't. I don't need. Oh, well, the the uh, the government is saying it's real now, so now it's real. It's like, yeah, right. Fuck, oh, I, great. I know. I knew. <laughs> you know, fuck you. But we're so angry now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do I want to go with? Um, oh, we'll do this little one. Um, another great thing about Fate Magazine is, is people would write in stories. Yeah. And here's one. The Night We Could Not Sleep by Joanne Carson. On our way from Southern California to Yellowstone National Park in 1963. Uh, oh, I went back to the 60s. Darn it. All right. <laughs> The question of the day was, are we there yet? Stuffed in a station wagon with four children and an English sheepdog, we were hot and tired of each other. That's like a perfect description of a family vacation. <laughs> we stopped late at night at a small motel outside of Twin Falls, Idaho. We ate at a roadside restaurant and walked back to our motel room. We flipped on the air conditioner. The children were asleep before their heads hit the pillow. My husband and my husband Jean and I were not far behind them. We slept soundly for about an hour or so. My eyes popped open. I was wide awake. Why, I wondered. Jean startled me when he asked, Are you awake? Before I could answer, a small voice piped in, We are all awake too, Dad. Without hesitation, I said, Let's get out of here. Hurry. Why had I added hurry, I wondered. We were packed and on our way in 15 minutes. We drove until morning light, stopping in America, American Falls, Idaho. Seated in a restaurant awaiting breakfast, we noticed something astounding. A man at another table was reading a newspaper. Displayed on the front page was a photograph and bold headline, semi-smashes small hotel, motel. During an electrical storm, a truck had crashed into the very room we had departed from in, in such haste on the night we could not sleep. Oh, my God. Wild. <laughs> wow. That is wild. You got to trust that. You got to trust. You got to trust that gut instinct. 
I love those stories. No time for doubt. There's no time for doubt. That's right. All right. I got one from the book Cherokee Little People Were Real by Mary A. Joyce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just a little snippet. It's called My Sasquatch Neighbors, Fred and Family. By <laughs> March March 23rd, 2013. He wouldn't mind using his real name, but Peter chose an alias to protect his Sasquatch neighbors from being discovered by hunters. Good. He's also cautious about giving away his location. He right. simply says he lives on the side of a mountain adjacent to the Nantahala National Forest in western North Carolina and just above a mountain creek that flows about 30 feet from his house. My first encounter with a Sasquatch was in the fall of 2011, not long after I moved to the mountain, Peter began. It was, an, it was early evening when a very unnatural sound grabbed my attention. It sounded like banging wood on the side of a tree. With a bit of trepidation, I went outside to get a better understanding of what I was hearing. As I got closer to the sound, I heard a couple grunts that I couldn't explain. It didn't sound like a bear. Peter digressed for a moment to explain that his neighbor has a little home shooting range and had been shooting a little earlier in the day. He has since figured out that when they're shooting, the Sasquatch get riled up. Mm -hmm. About 100 yards above the shooting range, Peter continued, I saw this creature next to a tree with a heavy branch in its hand. I could actually see it banging on the tree. That was my first encounter with a Sasquatch. About a month or two later, I was out on my porch and heard running up and down the creek. It sounded like children, but there are no children around my place. Hmm. Then I heard the sounds of running through the water from two different places at the same time. I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. Peter often has seen or heard Fred's family splashing in the creek near his home, but out of respect for Fred's wishes, he's never taken a photo of his friend. Ah, Fred agrees with us. <laughs> respect for Fred. <laughs> or not Fred, Peter. Anyway. Go, we Peter. Were, yeah. <laughs> we were, however, able to find this photo. No, never mind. As I walked <laughs> toward the creek, the splashing stopped, and once again, I heard that unique snorting, growling sound. I felt a surprising amount of fear because I had no rational explanation for what I was hearing. Those were my first two main experiences with my Sasquatch neighbors, Peter continued. Since then, I've observed an adult male, an adult female, and two adolescents. They live behind my house on a very steep slope that covers a fairly large area that's completely uninhabited. No roads, no trails, and no humans. Peter next explained that wildlife, including the Sasquatch, use a trail that crosses the old gravel logging road in front of his home. He's able to watch the creatures at night because he has a street light next to his garage, which is near the trail crossing. I have an advantageous position because my house sits up higher and that's part of and that part of the trail is illuminated by the streetlight peter said there have been many occasions when i've seen the sasquatch going across the gravel road they grow they go across one at a time believe it or not usually the female goes across first 
then the male, followed by the two adolescents. Peter next explained that instead of composting his leftover food, he takes it down to a spot near the creek where he first heard the younger Sasquatch playing in the water. I take food to that spot two or three times per week, he said, and every time I have this overwhelming feeling of gratitude coming from the forest. Mm-hmm. Last summer, the adult male who I've named Fred spent a lot of time with me when I was gardening. He telepathically communicated his appreciation for the garden and for my concern for the environment around it, the trees and the animals. He can perceive that in my aura and in my actions, I don't use any insecticides or pesticides and I have a deep appreciation for all forms of life. Fred, like all animals, can perceive that. If there were no hunters around, our relationship could probably evolve further because the Sasquatch really are intelligent. But in ways we don't see as intelligent. They are very connected with their entire environment. Anyone who is not connected to nature poses a threat to them. Yet kind-hearted people, because of their own fears, can frighten Sasquatch away. Human fear is almost like a bullhorn blasting that nobody can hear. Humans aren't aware of the bullhorn, but the Sasquatch are, and humans broadcast fear very loudly. By the way, sometimes things disappear from the garden, though never too much. I'm sure Fred and his family enjoy fresh vegetables from the garden too <laughs> and there's, there's some pictures of the guy's property it's beautiful mm. there's like a stream running through the forest and clean water it's amazing i love those properties yeah i know well you live on one of course you do well i don't have the stream going through <laughs> yeah. it's going through next door for the cows but... oh that's cool <laughs> At least they get, at least they get access to, to it. Yeah, they get in it when it's hot. They're oh, all yeah. in the water. <laughs> I'll try to join them one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See if they'll let me. We'll be attacked by cows. <laughs> that's crazy. That's yeah. I can see that, right? You live in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I, I love that it's North Carolina, too. I know the area they're talking about, too. You're out there working your property. Yeah. You see some stuff. <laughs> but you're not a jerk, so. Yeah. It, 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 it makes me think about, like, when I read stuff like that, like, okay, I, I think I think Kill talked about this. I'm, I'm sure he did. And when it, in either one of the books or one of the articles in Faith, or one of those magazines, but he talked about the numbers game of, he's like, okay, let's say, um, um, a hundred people see a UFO. Mm-hmm. Like one of those actually tells somebody and reports it. Right. You know? So it's like how many of those Fred stories are floating around? Right, especially like how, out where people don't like just go talk about that. You know right. what I mean? Like how many, in their family or something. You know how many good old boys, um, you know, 
who live around here in North Carolina have 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 seen one or had one mm-hmm. living on their land, you know, and just never right. either either told the people close to them or told nobody, you know. That it just right. fascinates me. Yeah, because if you gave the location, everybody would be at your house. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea to do that, especially now with the like the camo wearing fuckheads, you know. Right. I mean, they don't. Uh, never mind. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 not a good idea, you know, for for a number of reasons. Right keep your privacy you know yeah definitely all right i grabbed two articles one from each of those uh issues both that were are the our strange world segment from each of the and they're both by mark Travinsky. Cool. and they're both they both take place in maryland which makes sense because he wrote a book called the monster files monsters of maryland so it makes sense he he did a whole bunch of articles about maryland stuff oh good so here's one was mothman in maryland and this i'm sure i don't think we said what i've noticed doing the podcast is i guess because we read so much sometimes it's like did i share this ever like it's familiar to you yeah like like, did I just read it? Like, I've read it over the years, but did I share it? I don't know. <laughs> Mothman in Maryland. On Thursday, July 27th, 1944, at exactly 8.30 p.m., Father J.M. Johnson, pastor of St. John's Church in Hollywood, Maryland. Hollywood, Maryland is, um, I'm from Maryland, so it's um, Southern Maryland. So it's down near the water. Um not the shore, not that there's water there too. So, so not there, but Southern Maryland. Um, okay. Church in Hollywood, Maryland. Watch lightning flash in the sky outside his window. Thunderous rumbles emanated from the Northwest. The pastor left his room and went outside to watch the approaching storm. There is usually still daylight at 8.30 p.m. in July, but it was very dark due to the ominous storm clouds that were filling the sky. The lightning display was spectacular. The air was still. The pastor turned to the eastern skies and saw something that would undoubtedly be seared into his memory for the rest of his days. In the sky, and here I will quote verbatim from the account, the outspread form of a huge man with wings sailing down the pitch black sky towards the church. It was without lights or any other mechanical illumination. Though it was dark, its form was clearly discernible, having the appearance of a colossal man with an enormous head, massive body, gigantic, outstretched, winged arms, extensive legs, and immense feet. The pastor also described the entity as being intensely dismal and gruesome. The fearful aerial aerial monstrosity flew down from the sky at an angle of approximately 35 degrees. 
Father Johnson was initially afraid that the thing was a plane, it was wartime, and that it seemed to be headed in the direction of the church. The closer the creature got, however, the more unmistakable its figure, the more frightening, frightful it appeared in form. The winged monster changed its course, missing the church, and headed for a spot in the church graveyard. How about that? Oh. <laughs> that always sticks out to me. Yeah. According to Father Johnson, a man had been buried in that location several days earlier. We always come across yeah. that. Fresh oh. graves. Always. Branches of a tree near the church door block the pastor's view of part of the creature's descent. The father then ran around the front of the tree in time to see the entity land. The creature's landing was very odd. It zoomed down to the aforementioned graveyard location and docked there in perfect silence. There was no apparent crash. No flutter, no noise, no outburst, no explosion of any kind. It just slid swiftly to earth. Apparently, it had flown its course and landed without incident. The creature then disappeared as it landed, leaving the sun pastor no clue as to its significance. Father Johnson went to the site of the ent entity's landing the next morning to see if there were any signs of damage and to try to pick up clues to the mystery of the night flyer. There were no visible marks of any kind. Nothing was disturbed in the graveyard. Brother Johnson wrote of his extraordinary encounter in his autobiography. To the best of my knowledge, this column is the first occasion of this virtually unknown case outside of Father Johnson's obscure tomb. Has been, has been published in the strange I don't know. I lost, I lost the page. That always happens to me, Lisa. Can you believe I do office work? Now, come on. <laughs> I lost it. My page cut off. Fresh graves. That was great. We always find stuff with fresh graves in the graveyard. Yeah, always. I, I got a... I, I love how this happened. I got a good one to go right along with that. Okay. Okay. And yes, this is from Albert Rosales' Humanoid Encounters. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, near Da Nang, Vietnam, summer 1969. So this is during the Vietnam War, 1 a.m. PFC Earl Morrison, a private with the United States Marines, was sitting atop a bunker with two other men, enjoying the warm evening air, when suddenly, and for no apparent reason, they were compelled to look up into the sky. There they mm. saw a glowing figure flying downward toward them. Mm. We couldn't make out what it was at first, Morrison later told an interviewer. It started coming toward us really slowly. All of a sudden, we saw what looked like wings, like a bat's. Only it was gigantic compared to what a regular bat would be. After it got close enough so we could see what it was, it looked like a woman. A mm. naked woman. She was black. Everything was black. Her skin was black. Her body was black. The wings were black. Everything was black. But it glowed. It glowed in the night. Kind of a greenish cast to it. Morrison also got a good look at the creature's wings. 
We saw her arms towards the wings, he explained in his report. And they looked like regular molded arms, each with a hand and fingers and everything. But they had Mm -hmm. skin from the wings. There was no noise at first. It looked like her arms didn't have any bones in them because they were limbered just like a bat. Mm -hmm. The figure flew directly over the men at about a height of six or seven feet. The three servicemen just stared as it flew by, awestruck. Eventually, they heard the flapping of wings as she gradually sailed out of sight. And speaking of uh, good magazines like Fate, this was from Flying Saucer Review. Case yeah, That's another good one. <laughs> that woman. Yeah. It makes me think of that uh, Danzig song, Her Black Wings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moth woman. That woman. <laughs> yeah. In Vietnam. There we go. <laughs> that was good. That's good. The other one I have is a hoax. So that's fun. Ocean oh, City Sea Serpent Deflated. All right, I'm not going to read all this. Okay, this guy, Mark Trevinsky, wrote a book about Maryland monsters. So while he was researching, he came across an account in Fate, October 1959. Right. And according to the Fate piece titled It Bellows, the monster was variously just dis- oh, Sorry. Residents of Ocean City, Maryland reported sighting a sea monster off the inlet there that was 50 to 100 feet long and six feet thick. Um, The monster was variously described as orangish, greenish, brownish, and it was said to swim rapidly with its head about six feet out of the water. And it emitted loud shrieks. Oh, man. Okay. A sports fisherman named Lee Hoffman supposedly claimed he saw a snake-like creature at least 75 feet long. The beastie was brownish green colored with spots. Hoffman said when the thing, whatever it was, saw our boat, it let out a couple of bellows and dove out of sight into the water. J.P. Topping, who was the captain of the sea toy, said that we heard this loud holler. It sounded like something out of this world. Naturally, all of us looked, and there it was, the darndest critter ever. It was big, real big, more snake-like than anything else. Had a head like a snake, but we were too far off to see scales. It lifted its head out of the water and watched a boat approach, then let out a noise and dove. Its tail flipped up maybe 20 or 30 feet in the air when she went down. It had fins and was orange. Captain Captain Topping claimed that he was taking a party of four out trolling near the mouth of the inlet. There were several other sightings as well. A concession worker described the creature as brown with a big head and mouth. Its body seemed to coil like a snake. Okay, so he wanted to research that account for yeah. his book, Monsters of Maryland, which I'm going to look up. I don't have that. All right. So he started researching it, right? And um, it's like 20 years later, right? So he figured right. if, it, if it's a hoax, people would have come clean by now, right? So he can find some evidence. Yeah. 
And um, he actually went to Ocean City and he called the folklorist historian for that region, 80-year-old Dorothy Pepper, who had no memory of an Ocean City sea serpent or, or re record of the case in her clipping collection. Yeah. This did not bode well, and I wondered if this would be one investigation with them that would not pan, pan out. However, I remain strongly determined to bag this monster. Upon arriving off season in the largely deserted resort town, I started by going to the library in Ocean City. Unfortunately, there were no files pertaining to the case or to local folklore. Nor were there any newspapers from 1959 or microfilm or otherwise. They were said to be in the main lot library for the county in Snow Hill, about an hour away. I checked the regional telephone books and ran into dead ends with all the witnesses. At least none of them were listed under the names included in the state article. There were, however, a number of toppings, the last name toppings, and that gave me cause for hope. While I knew that Captain J.P. Topping was possibly deceased, a surviving relative might remember hearing tales of such a memorable event. On a hunch, I told an elderly librarian about the object of my search. Although she was a lifelong Ocean City resident, she had never heard of the case. I read her the list of witnesses, though, and she recognized one of them. She knew Captain Topping and thought he might still live in the area. I could contact him through his son, Robert, who was one of the Toppings listed in the telephone directory. So I called Robert E. Topping and learned from the now elderly retired seaman that his father had died in 1971 at the age of 79. Captain Topping had spent 70 years fishing in Maryland and Virginia. I asked Mr. Robert Topping if he remembered his father talking about a sea serpent that he sighted in 1959. And he answered, I would have thought that I would have known if there would be a sea serpent. My daddy and I never believed in sea serpents. I worked with my daddy all my life. I was on the boat with him every day from 1938 to 71 when he passed away. My heart sank. The toppings were my only real lead, according to Robert E. Topping. There was no sighting by anyone on the sea toy. I decided to read him the state article to see if it would jog his memory. When I got to the section about the alleged sighting by his father, Robert laughed and laughed. <laughs> I had a good idea what was coming. That was no sea serpent. That was a big plastic thing with air in it. That was some flimsy plastic or rubber thing that we were paid to tow out to sea and then let it drift ashore. Uh -huh. I think it was for Frontier Town, an amusement park but I'm not sure. We put it alongside of the boat and ran real slow out of the inlet. I think we got paid $20, $25 for doing it. It was a flimsy thing. The air wouldn't stay in it and it was hard to tow it. We busted it. Robert <laughs> thought that it was perhaps 25 feet long. I asked about the 50 to 100 foot estimates of the creature's length by the witnesses. And Mr. Topping explained that the sea toy was 45 feet long and that the sea serpent was considerably shorter than the boat. He thought that it was orange, one of the three colors described in the state article. I searched a number of local newspapers to get additional information about the hoax and struck pay dirt in the Snow Hill, Maryland Democratic Messenger, Thursday, 
June 18, 1959. And on a, the article on the front page was monster may be a feature of water carnival. Oh. Describing the sea monster, which recently came ashore in Ocean City, might be one of the stars at the annual Lions Club water carnival, according <laughs> to the paper. The 60-foot creature, a Baltimore press agent's brainstorm, was a feature of the Maryland Petroleum Association's convention celebrating the 100th anniversary of the discovery of oil. <laughs> That's random. <laughs> The, re the revealing Democratic Messenger article explains that one of the statements Mr. Topley made during my interview with him, when I read him the quote attributed to his father in the Fade article, he said, that doesn't sound like daddy. And that sounds like someone else said it for him. Yeah. Somebody else probably did say it for him. The somebody being an unnamed Baltimore public relations man referred to in the Democratic Messenger piece. <laughs> The Thursday, June 25th, 1959, Snow Hill, Maryland, Democratic Messenger, in an article titled, Crowd of 5,000 Expected of Lions Club Carnival, also briefly mentioned the possible arrival of the sea monster and explained the relationship between the monster and the Maryland Petroleum Association. The monster is made entirely of oil derivatives a promotion of the oil industry. <laughs> so there's one where he did a little research on an interesting article, and it was a hoax. I love it. <laughs> I love I love those as much as I love the right the ones. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and I I I love its association with a carnival. Right. A lot of these are associated with a carnival or, you know, right. Ballyhoo, some kind of spook show type thing, you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, I felt this is really fun to record. It's been so long. Yes, right. <laughs> we won't let August, we won't wait till the end of August. Yeah. We both totally forgot. We're like, oh man, I totally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I got quit. a stack of books to read. So I'll get on it since it's hot and it's good to stay inside and read. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. All righty. All righty, let's close it up. And I have, I'm going to include a um, obscure 80s dance song to take us out. So everybody, like, enjoy that. Fantastic. <laughs> That's all I've been listening to lately. <laughs> nice. I love it. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>